Amen. Thank you so much. And let's keep that provision of Jesus to empower and his provision to forgive at the center of our lives. And that grace is beautiful. The world needs it both for victory and for reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord, we're here before you. We came to worship. Thank you for what you've done to lift our hearts up. And we rejoice, Lord, in the grace that's been provided. It's the very essence of who you are, bridging the gap, forgiving, covering, healing. Now, Lord, be our provision corporately and be our provision individually. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This morning I'm going to preach a sermon that is a corollary to one that you could listen to online today if you so choose. Uh, I was blessed by it at the Michigan camp meeting. It was a message by Pastor John Bradshaw entitled, Does This Thing Work? And it was a real reminder to us that God is faithful and wherever his presence is, it's going to work. But I've had a few circumstances in my life that have compelled me to add to the message and since uh, God blessed him but he's not part of the Bible it's okay if I add to what he did so I've entitled this message how this works now I want to tell you why I'm preaching the sermon this morning Um, I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that my entire life and my ministry is an experiment And the farther the world goes in one direction, the more experimental my life and my ministry becomes. About 50 years ago, society experienced this cultural revolution in which questioning authority and abandoning the pillars of our society was begun. Uh, Most of you realize that yesterday, uh, the unraveling of some of that took another, well, there's another pull on the thread unraveling the humanism that has uh, backed up our licentious living for the last 50 years. I'm referring to uh, the finality of the statement by the Supreme Court. I'm very convinced we're coming to the end of a big experiment. It's two generations long. It's called humanism. And it has been the attempt to have a civil society without the constructs of law and order. In this case, since we're in America, especially uh, the law and order that comes from the Word of God, precept and principle. And I, I, when I look back, as I've been kind of forced to do a little bit, I, I wonder at how it has worked. Because somehow in the midst of my journey as a pastor, I don't know, it's not somehow, it's very clearly the Holy Spirit in the presence of his word and as I seek him in the presence of my life. I have chosen to lead the families that I've been associated with, in this case church families, on the principles and the precepts of the word of God. Those words have come under great assault to the place today where if you live by those words, you are now, uh, you're registered as uh, an enemy of human freedom and joy, a bigot, And while there are people that have managed the Word of God carelessly and have not really lived with the Spirit's indwelling in their life, 
I, I need you to know something. There are a lot of pretenders out there. And that sometimes are spiritual leaders. If you think the day of Jeremiah was the only day of false prophets, you need to think again. Sometimes it's pastors, sometimes it's teachers, sometimes it's elders. The problem is, is that the church in America, because it did not, now I'm speaking about Protestantism in general, the church in America in the late 60s and early 70s didn't know what to do. They had clung to tradition, and they had seen the ranks of Christendom remain steady. As a matter of fact, the Protestant church in America grew up through the 1960s, but right about then, it began a decline, and they didn't know what to do. The problem is, is that God's people, to be blessed and fruitful and fragrant and vibrant, must move with him, and he never leaves you where you are. He never leaves you where you are, friends. That's good news. Jesus reaches into the dysfunction of your life like it's the dysfunction of Abraham's family as we've been studying in the Sabbath school, or like it's the dysfunction of yours or mine or whatever it might be. He reaches in and he saves us. Now, we have a choice to say, yes, I'll take your hand, lead me, or we have the choice to say no. The problem is, is that some things don't show their fruit until you're a long ways into it. For instance, smoking. Your very first puff on a cigarette gives you a sense that you probably shouldn't go this way. But if you can overcome the first few cigarettes, you can addict yourself and not have to worry, at least you don't think, for a long time. But somewhere into that, 20, 30, 40 years, you start noticing these billboards along the roadside that said, if you've ever smoked, there's a screen for cancer now. What I'm telling you is, is that not only with the physiology of our body, but with the makeup of our society, there are certain things you can get away with and you can do, but they don't show their results until a generation or two in. That's where we are right now. That's why we have people going into schools and nightclubs and other places and blasting away at people. That's why it's hard to get people to show up on time to go to work. That's why marriages are falling apart. That's why it appears that society's about Whatever works for you, doesn't matter if it works for your family or your church or anybody else, we're at the end of an experiment. And even the secular world's going to wake up and say, oh, we went the wrong way. And when that happens, Earth's history is just about done. A false revival will be here, getting back to God, which will include forcing you to get back to God for the sake of everybody. We've heard that phrase, haven't we? Kind of the corporate well-being. So... We have this awesome chance in this moment this morning. I'm going to take you on a journey. I'm going to show you 15 principles for how a healthy church must work to be healthy. Now, I know there's lookalikes out there. I know there are churches that look like they're working fantastically. The problem is filling a pew and filling the offering plate is not a true measure of success. And there are all kinds of gimmicks and shortcuts and detours or very pragmatic things that you can do that make it look like you're succeeding. You can even get people to sing your praises. I once sat through a workers' meeting where a fellow minister was given the microphone and he spent about a half hour, 45 minutes talking to us about raving fans. 
raving fans. I didn't know how to characterize that back when I was listening to it, but I understood from raising my own children that the goal is not to have raving fans because raising children involves some difficult dynamics as well. We were on the front side some 20-some years ago, 25 years ago, with consumerism unleashed inside of Adventism. And if you give the people what they think they need or want, you can collect a large number to you. And in Adventism, what that means is you just start getting rid of all the things that are the practical cross-bearing dynamics of life. So eat what you want, dress like you want, watch what you want, listen to what you want, pretty much do what you want and remind me about how much God loves me. Now, the last thing I want to remind you about how much God loves you. But all of the rest, I want to remind you that God calls us all to carry a cross, which is the instrument of hope, but it's also the instrument of death to self. And that cross cannot be borne without Jesus. He said, come, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But he also said, if you're going to come after me, you're going to have to carry this. There's no other way to do it. So we could actually fill churches and we could actually pe preach messages of assurance all the while large swaths of people are unprepared for the coming judgment. Now this is serious business. So serious that if I don't do my job right, according to the book of Ezekiel, I will have blood on my hands. But it won't just be the blood of people who go to the grave, it'll be people's blood who go there permanently. When your eternal life has already been paid for, when your eternal life has been given to you, a place in heaven prepared for you, if the leaders in God's church do not do the right thing, it is especially dangerous because the devil is very anxious to corrupt the message and ministry of the church for the sake of giving people false assurance as they embrace the world. Now, take your bulletins, if you would, this morning. I want to look at this quote that's in there. It's a quote in relationship to our Scripture reading. It says, After the death of Moses, the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, There shall not be any man able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Be strong and of good courage. Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which my servant Moses commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left that thou mayest, what's the next word? Are you there, folks? That thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. Now, the next paragraph is very interesting. It says, do you think that all these charges would have been given to Joshua if there had been no danger of his being brought under misleading influences? It was because the strongest influence was to be brought to bear against his principles of righteousness that the Lord in his mercy charged him not to turn to the right hand or to the left. He was to follow a course of strictest Integrity sounds a little bit like Jesus saying, broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. Now, I'm here to assure you this morning 
that God never intended that his families or his churches be broken down, beaten up, discouraged, and disappointing in their offering to the world. As a matter of fact, God intended that his people be the most vibrant, the most happy, the most functional, the most joyful, the most sacrificing, the most unified people in all the world. But getting there is not easy. And having come through the largest part of raising a family of four myself, especially in this digital age, I recognize that raising functional children in a dysfunctional age is not easy. The devil's after us. He's applied an orthodontic pressure. He's laid siege to the church. And what you need to know as we start this sermon this morning is that Joshua's on the, on the bounds of the promised land, and so are we. Now, in the book Selected Messages, Second Selected Messages, Ellen White tells the story. I think it was a camp meeting that was held in Indiana, and we've just finished most of our camp meetings in the United States. And in this camp meeting, they brought in a variety of musical instruments and a type of music that was indistinguishable from the world. In that event, she writes commenting about the bedlam is the word that she uses. And she says that this very kind of experience will be brought into God's church again just before probation closes. Now, the Protestant churches of America didn't know what to do in the 60s and the 70s. So along comes these pastors. Rick Warren, Bill Hybels become the two pastors that are the most preeminent in turning the church into a consumer religious entity. And instead of coming back to the Bible and seeking out the principles for church growth, they go to the unconverted masses and they go door to door. And they take surveys of what people want in their church. And they discover that people don't want to dress up, they don't want to sing the hymns, they don't want to be told they're sinners. Now, there's a few of those items that at some level we want to make sure we acknowledge. If you're here today, God's asked you to come. He's glad you're here. But after you learn about what he's done for you, he asks you to come and present all of your life in its fullest and in its best. In regards to music, music is an instrument that we have not studied in the last generation or two in Adventism. And so we find ourselves doing what the Protestant churches have done. We've started embracing the music of the world, attaching Christian words to secular rhythms, tunes, etc. And we think it's working. And in regards to sin, I don't know how you have a gospel if you don't have sin. And I want you to think about what I'm saying. The first three chapters of Romans starts with making sure everybody knows they're a sinner. And then it goes to the absolute best news in the world. That while we were still sinners, while we were actively in rebellion to God, Jesus came and he redeemed us. What I need you to understand is that beginning in the 70s and the 80s, we have a total transformation of, of Protestantism. And it goes from not being willing to follow the truth to opening its arms to the world, and it looks very successful. And these mammoth campuses spring up with lots of money. And we have new suggestions for things like, don't make anybody feel obligated to give. Just put a place for them to give somewhere else. And it, it, it is somewhat of a religious Ponzi scheme because in a Ponzi scheme, 
You just keep adding people to it, and that keeps the finances flowing. But at some point in time, it unravels. And as long as you can keep things growing and building, and people can be raving as your fans, it looks like it's all working. Until you come to the kind of crises in American society that the church should have done something to help avoid and prevent but instead the church has embraced the world, lost its power to convert, and thereby sealed its fate with weakness, apathy, indifference. The gospel will confront people, but it will set them free. But when the gospel is not preached, people remain in their sins like Israel wanted to remain where the leeks and the onions and the fishes were. Let's go to our scripture reading. Joshua chapter 1. Moses is dead. He's been buried. They've mourned for him for 30 days. And now it's time for a new leader. It's time for the journey that began 40 years ago to come to a conclusion. And in this journey, there's to be a new leader. We are on the edges of the promised land. It is not just that the Christian world will wholesale embrace the dynamics of music. And by the way, nothing is more deadly to the spiritual experience than a lack of the Bible and an embracing of the wrong music. Music is woven into our experience for worship primarily, also for joy and for pleasure. But music in worship is as central to worship almost as the spoken word, which is why there were paid singers and choristers in the Hebrew temple. Music is the expression that combines both thought and feeling in something either pure and beautiful and received by Jesus as a sweet offering, or it is corrupted. And we've gone a long ways without talking about it. And it's sort of normal, isn't it? Because if especially our leaders start listening to the wrong music, and then they bring it into the church, it does kind of make sense that at some point in time, the church will have to quit talking about what it used to talk about in regards to music and worship, or else it'll be internally conflicted, a type of corporate cognitive dissonance where something's out of whack, so something's got to go. It's not going to be the music because that's the music I like, so it's going to be talking about music. And there have even been writ books written that state unequivocally that music is amoral. In other words, there is no moral value in music. But I need to remind you that in the 1950s or so, and even before then, but let's just use one point in, in United States history, the phenomena of rock and roll was seen as an affront to civil society, not just to Christian people. But you give it long enough, and you baptize it with words, so said, so hoped, so wished. And you can actually move the genre into the midst of the Christian church, and you can eviscerate the elements of the cross, because most of this music is focused on me. I did it. I did the same experiment I did driving back from Battle Creek. I stopped and saw my mother on Thursday on the way back from some meetings. So I tuned into WCIC. And when I do this, I get my phone out. I write down the names of the songs so I can go back and get their lyrics. I wrote down at what time I heard them, what channel I heard them on. And so let's just see here. Let's just pull up my file. I didn't do this in the first sermon, but I'm going to do it right now. 
And let's go to my notes, and I keep one note just for music. And if you're listening to the wrong music today, I need to warn you that that music has the power, since it bypasses cognitive thinking, it has the power to hold you locked down in a wrong experience that's religious but not acceptable to God. So here we are. WCIC, I can download the app for Faith, Hope, and family. Here's one. Jericho's walls got to come down, got to come down. Here's one. No what ifs or what ifs. I heard these on Thursday. If you go back and listen to the words, you're going to find out that they're really not so much about Jesus. They're mainly about us. And while Jesus is interested in us, I really believe the experience he wants to give us is a victory that gives us freedom to praise him about what he's done, not just keep talking about what we need, what we need, what we need. Joshua chapter 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, verse 1, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise. Cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I'm giving them to the sons of Israel. The first things you need to know about a church or a family is that its leaders need to be listening to God. God is talking. Are the leaders listening? And one of the easiest ways to find out is to challenge a leader on something they said. If it's true, the leader does not get, need to get anger and animated in, re, in regards to being questioned. If it's false, they'll have to bring They'll have to bring some form of animation into the subject matter because it will be an offense. Error is always offended by truth. Truth can remain in dialogue. Error cannot. Error must silence. Error must sideline. Error must ad hominem. Attack the man. When somebody's dealing in truth, you can talk to them and they can talk with you. And there can be a journey. If two truth seekers are seeking truth and they start in a different place, they'll get there. If one person seeking truth talks to somebody who says they are but they aren't, they won't get anywhere. It'll break down in frustration and escalation of emotion. God speaks. Joshua listens. It's clear that Moses is dead. He's been dead at least 30 days of mourning. You get the idea that Moses is dead enough to where he can represent all of those like Lazarus that truly had died completely and they were brought back to life like Moses was brought back to life. But at this encounter, 30 days after the morning, Moses is dead. But there's a new man. And in verse 3, there's assurance to the new man. He stood in the shadow of a giant of a spiritual leader, but now he's the shadow maker following Jesus. Every place, verse 3, on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness of this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the great Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, this will be your territory, everything. Verse 5, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. <laughs> now, I'm at a different phase in my ministry. I graduated in 1987 from the undergraduate religion department at Andrews University. Carl Kaufman was the chair of the Department of Religion, a prince of a man, a godly, godly man who was discipling young men to hold up this gospel message. I learned some amazing things there 
There were a lot of things I needed to learn, but sitting at the feet of these experienced pastors, I was learning things I needed to know. Probably one of the most significant things that stands out in my mind that he said to me, which I never had thought in a thousand years, he said, whole congregations can become very corporately selfish. That was a thought I had never thought about. But why should it be so unique? I mean, whole families can become very selfish, so why not whole churches? When I realized that, I understood a little bit of the challenge that was before me. When I came out of ministry, the church was struggling with what to do. People were making lots of money. They weren't attending meetings very well. It appeared that evangelism wasn't working the way it used to. Lots of questions going on. This verse here, especially if you're a preacher listening to me here today, this segment of the scriptures is terribly important because we are coming up to the end of probation and God needs men and women who are listening to his voice, who have the assurance of his presence and are not afraid. They know that God willed victory for the church and God wants to use the people that will obey him. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you. Be strong, verse 6, and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. You know what, folks? Let's bring this into the modern 21st century. God is before us in this scripture right now saying, you know what? I promised you the promised land. It's not a literal Jordan, and it's not a literal place anymore. It's now a literal place in heaven, and it's a figurative river that you're going to cross. It's a river of experience. Be strong, verse 7. Be careful to do according to the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn to it from the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. And this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate upon it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord God is with you wherever you go. We sort of think we're on the other side of COVID, although it's still going around. And I'm not sure I know anybody who hasn't gotten it. It doesn't matter how many shots. And some of you should get the shots because you carry certain challenges and comorbidities. But how many lived fearful through that period? How many people were in trepidation? about their ability to breathe and stand upright and take nourishment. Is this how God destined us to live? With the living Christ in our midst? The answer is no. But I'll tell you, COVID revealed a lot about people and corporate congregations. And well, there was a whole world that was looking for an answer. The only answer they could get was primarily from the secular world, and it had a lot to do with Everything except confidence that God knows the number of days and the number of breaths and the number of heartbeats before they're all done and before you take any one of them. What I'm going to share with you this morning will, for your personal life and for our corporate life, absolutely transform. And the absence of this kind of living will absolutely rob us and the world of what God wants to offer. The first thing you need to know about how this works it's found in the book of Acts, chapter 1. Take your Bibles, Acts chapter 1. If you want your life to work and you want your church to work, 
You need to understand this is the seminal, absolute, cornerstone principle of how things work. Acts chapter 1. It's the command of Jesus. It goes to his disciples. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. It says, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I want to tell you, friends, every seed that the sower sows is alive. It grows. But some seed falls on rocky ground. Some seed falls on weedy ground. Some seed falls on the path. But the fact of the matter is this. The principle of life is in the gospel message. It's in the seed. And if you want your life to be fragrant, if you don't want to live in fear and condemnation, if you'd like to have power to face what's coming in the future, and by the way, it's not going to be pretty, then you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this goes along with the first commandment where it says, Thou shall have no other gods before me. God is not into two-timing relationships. He's not willing to be in a relationship where he gives away all of his blessings to those who reach out and embrace the world. And if in your life right now you have a besetting sin, maybe even an addiction, you have choices that are keeping you from devotion to God, I'm here to tell you how this works. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he'll give you the desire or at least the decision to say, Lord, I want to break free from that. He will give you the power to be set free from that, and he'll give you the power never to go back to it. But without the Holy Spirit, there is no individual and there is no collection of individuals, including this church, that will be alive and free. But I want to tell you something. The joy of the disciples could not be con contained. They were willing to be whipped and beaten and stoned and starved and all these things, but they rejoiced in the fact that their hearts were free towards God, free towards their fellow men, and there was power and life. It works because God is in our hearts and God is in our midst. And when God is in those places, there will be victory. The second thing you need to know, turn back to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter, 2 Chronicles, Old Testament. Get your Bibles out. We're going to keep moving. 2 Chronicles, chapter 7. Don't just sit there and listen to me. You need to see it. You need to watch it. Your eyes need to focus on it. If it's your Bible, you need to mark it. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take the Bible in the pew with you. But do some circling. Make this yours. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. Not only will the Holy Spirit bring life, but the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That same Holy Spirit that worked on the day of Pentecost wants to work personally in my own personal Pentecost. God wants you to have perfect peace Perfect vitality, fruitfulness, and fragrance. Second Chronicles chapter 7. If my people, verse 14, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. This is an answer to what Solomon really wanted. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Humble yourselves to what? Humble yourself to the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to your conscience. Now, if you think your conscience is wrongly calibrated, 
Go to the Bible and see. Find an older person who's walked with God and ask them, am I off on this? But if you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you and he says, it's time for this to be let go of. If it's like God speaking to Gideon and he says, go tear down that idol. And Gideon says, huh, me? Who am I? God affirmed in Gideon's heart he was to do this. But if I'll humble myself, if I'll pray, this is where God talks the loudest. Get down on your knees. It's good to walk. It's good to talk while you're riding in the car. But it's best if you have a place in your own home where you get down on your knees and in bodily form you say, Lord, how could you save me? But thank you that you have. And I'm coming to you in humility. Help me to turn from any wicked way. Some, Lord, I don't know about. Some I know about and don't want to acknowledge. Some I'm deeply connected to and need your help. I won't be able to sever. You need your help for all of it. But if you're willing to humble yourself, if a whole church is willing to say, we've done some things the wrong way, then God will acknowledge that humility because he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, and he will send his spirit, and he will revive his people. Let's go to Acts again, Acts chapter 19. How does this work? If you want your church to work, if you want your life to work, it's important you understand a few things. Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, we have an amazing story, God at work in Ephesus. I mean, true miracles. They turned from their arts and their divination. They were into the occult. You can be sure since Ephesus was the home of Diana, uh, queen of the Ephesians, there was tremendous immorality in this place. But it's in Ephesus that they, they have this amazing burning of all of the wrong books. But something unique happens there. In Ephesus, in chapter 19 of the book of Acts, it says this in verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. The seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered, and he said unto them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and subdued them, overpowering them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I don't know of a much more embarrassing religious experience or spiritual encounter that happens in all of the Bible. We know there was a man when they came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that ran away naked, but here there's seven people, beat up, bruised, and bleeding, running out of the house after they attempted to cast out a demon. Now I'll add to this story the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You remember Ananias and Sapphira? They saw how Barnabas was acknowledged for the great gift he had given to the church, and they thought to themselves, it'll bring us into esteem if we sell this property and give the money to the church, and that's what they said they'd do. But somewhere along the way, they lost their integrity. And when they lost their integrity, they decided to only give part of the money to the church. Ananias comes first. Later comes Sapphira. And when they come in, it's loss of life for the man, and about three hours later, loss of life for the wife. There is no play acting 
in the Christian experience because nobody can be fooled, at least nobody that matters can be fooled. You cannot fool God, and you can fool yourself right into your own eternal death. And there are times when you are fooling other people who will see your hypocrisy and your inconsistency in other places, and you will be a stumbling block to them. If you want, if you want the vitality of Christ, you cannot. If you want this to work, you have to let the Holy Spirit speak to you. You have to let the Holy Spirit indwell in you, and you must walk that narrow way because God is completely put off by, and it is deadly, eternal, dangerous to you to play act. In other words, when you make a mistake, you say you're sorry. In other words, you don't see the church as a launching pad, as, a, as an arena, as a stage. The church is not a place to showcase your great gifts. The church is a place to encounter God and bless each other. The fourth thing we need to know if we're going to have it work is we're going to have to seek first the kingdom of God. We won't even turn to Matthew 6.33. We know it by heart. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added unto you. I can tell you why tons of churches aren't working, and they have to go to, they have to, go to a, a version of apostate Protestantism for their worship services, because in their private lives, God is not first. And in their corporate lives, God is not first. I had one of you tell me of a church approximately this size, so over a thousand members, where the pastor got up to preach an evangelistic series, and the church was basically empty. You tell me how God's going to bless that. Now, every time his word goes out, something good's going to happen. It's not like his word returns void without doing something. But if in my private life I love golf or football or my portfolio, I love music, I love video games, I love something on the internet, if in my private life God is not first, and if there's a God before him, then it absolutely will not work. But when a group of people say to themselves or individuals say to themselves, Jesus will come first. I told in the first service, I've said it here before, probably just about every call I've gotten or at least several, I've looked at them and said, that is not something that I really think is something that really looks like a great thing for me. But God must come first. He must come first in the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time, your commitment to each other. If you're married, your commitment to the church. Without putting God first, there will be no vitalized experience for anybody. Number five, go to the last book of the Old Testament. Just find Matthew and turn back a page or two. The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 1. How does this thing work? It works very simply. If it doesn't work according to these things, it's not going to work, and we'll have substitutes instead. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. It says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my respect, says the Lord of hosts? O priest, you despise my name, but you say, How have we despised your name? You're presenting defiled food on my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? And that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord? 
I don't have time to keep breeding. We have offered so many lame and blind offerings to God. We have not done with our heart, mind, and soul everything God says for us to do. And consequently, a church that's under siege, a church in which the orthodontic orthodontic pressure of a sinful age is seeking to reconfigure the smile of the Christian church, not for the better. We find ourselves in places where we've said, why should I go? It's like everything we do is about me. Ah, the preacher's boring. I've heard it before. I'm here to tell you, friends, God does not accept blemished offerings, and that ought not to be offensive to us considering He did not make a blemished offering to redeem you and me. We are living in an age in which second best and afterthoughts make up so much of what goes on in the name of God. And God says, I don't want that. And if you don't have a right understanding of what a good marriage relationship looks like, I mean a really vitalized one, where you actually have trust and respect and attraction towards each other, in those marriages, the priority of keeping the love pure and strong is something that's protected. No blemished offerings. I'm not going to, I've got too much to say to look all of these up. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5. It says, the wounds of a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Leviticus 19, 17. Hold no grudge in your heart towards your neighbor, but speak to them frankly and love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 18. Tell it to your neighbor in private. When we quit taking the effort and we practice the easy way, the politically correct way, when we no longer have the relationships that keep us true, it's not going to work. Number seven, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. Eli was doing his own thing. His sons were terrible reprobates working in the church. If you think there are none of similar character today, you need to think again. And while many's lives are not blown wide open for us to see, those false prophets still exist. Eli would do nothing more than the tepid words of talk. He didn't remove his sons from ministering in the temple where they found illicit relationships. He has to go around Eli and his sons down, down to Samuel. And Samuel becomes the rebuking agent of an old priest And God says to Eli through Samuel, those who honor me, I will honor. Every person listening to me that wants to do something for God, if in their heart, in sincerity and simplicity, they take God at their word, you need to remember something, whether it takes a while or whether it comes quickly. In time, the honor of God will rest upon you. For those who honor God, he will honor Number eight, Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare. It doesn't matter whether it's the preacher or the president or whoever it might be. When God calls you into an interaction with somebody and you deflect for fear of what retribution might come to you or change of relational status, you are honoring man above God and that brings a snare. One of the things I learned in moving to this community with its large institution, etc., be that the Lake Union, be it the university, the multiple schools, everybody that's involved in all of these things, they're just people. And they're in the web and the weave of our family life for a reason. The fear of man brings a snare. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, Peter says that love covers a multitude of evil. You know, if you want to be alive and happy in Jesus, you can't be registering everybody's problems. You have to love them in such a way that you can overlook some of what's going on in their life. Love is the bond of perfection, Colossians 
3.14. And 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. If you want a church that works, you have to have leadership that's willing to stand for what's right. The hireling runs away, Jesus says, when he sees the wolf coming. For some of you that are leading out right now, you need to remember the advice of Paul to Timothy when he writes in 1 Timothy 1.3, and he says, remain at Ephesus. When the going gets tough, you don't hit the eject button or the easy button and fly away. When we come to the generations of the church, it's important for us to remember that God set it up to have the young and the old together. Leviticus 19.32, rise up in the presence of a gray-headed man. Ellen White says it is the aged Eli with the youthful Samuel. This is as it should be. To the law and to the testimony, the scriptures write, it's not according to these things, it's because there is no light in them. And then 2 Corinthians 6, verses, I believe, 14 or so. I want to turn to this one. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It's important for us to look at this. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse 14. Especially in this age of religious pluralism and ecumenism, where we see all kinds of religions falling over themselves to be connected to each other and to the church of Rome. It's important that you remember these few things that Paul wrote. He said, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, this sounds like Revelation 18, which is the fourth angel that calls people to come out of Babylon. So lest you think believers and unbelievers here is representative of the difference between Christian and unchristian, we need to make this in context of the 21st century as the fourth angel's message is getting ready to, to go loudly around the world. Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my daughter, sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The last thing, if we want to see this thing work, comes from John chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus says, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Now listen, friends. This Adventist church started with a small band of disappointed people. They got it wrong. There, there was a part of the prophecy they misinterpreted, and they thought the world was going to be cleansed by fire on October 22, 1844. Instead, what happened is they were cleansed shaken, as it were, as a group of Adventists from a wrong understanding, a testing of their spirit. And just a day later, they're on the journey again of seeking out what went wrong, but their spirits were pure. Their desire to seek out truth was sincere. That little band of people over the period of the next several years endured scorn and derision and mocking because of what they had done by simply believing in the spirit's prompt to listen to William Miller. That little band of people grew steadily and faithfully around the principles of God's Word. Many of them were put out of their churches, but they bonded together in a common love for Jesus and a common understanding of truth. That little group grew until in 1863 they were incorporated as a church, 
Over the next 20 or 30 years, they were weak, but they were growing. Finally, they come into their strength in the latter 19th century. That church spreads out all around the world. It is strong to call out hope in the midst of the world wars and the knowledge that there's a greater kingdom coming and that these European dictators that are seeking to subjugate all people to them shall not succeed. They will not cleave. That little group goes to the farthest edges among some of the most savage people. People lay down their lives to disease and violence. They are separated without the internet to connect them or even the blessings of a simple phone line. This church grows and strengthens into a powerful institute, building up hospitals and educational centers and outposts of light in the form of its churches. And for the last 50 years, we've watched our church in some parts of the world where there's been an embracing of worldly methods struggle to survive. And God is calling us back to a humility that can acknowledge the simplicity of a childhood walk along with the best brain power of a unified, strategizing group of people with no blemished offerings and a total commitment to advancing this cause. God is calling his people into an experience where they have the personal vitality that brought together brings the corporate vitality. And in the midst of that vitality, souls are one. Yes, I learned some things in that little Monticello church, first time on my own. I learned that they didn't want me messing with their money and they didn't want me inconveniencing their lives. They didn't want this young preacher with his idealism, his, his sincerity, naivete maybe, prompting them out of their comfort zones. I also learned in that church that if you're patient and you stick with people, eventually what they see as, as an inconvenient intrusion into their life will turn into the best experience they've ever had. And I watched God provide for them financially. I watched him send souls into their lives. I watched the church gain in vibrancy of communion and community. I also learned in that church that the old people know what they're doing. And we ought not be running over what it is they sense to be right. Of course old people can be stuck in their ways occasionally. And they have to be patiently, wisely, reverently nudged to recognize that some change is important. I learned as I moved on to the next district that it doesn't matter how big your church is, it can still be dysfunctional. And I learned that mission moves us and that it unifies us and that God will give us in, in greater proportion to what we put in blessings to come out of it. I watched unity and togetherness develop. And in coming to this church, God has done the same thing for us again, only this time on a larger scale. So where are we, friends? We can be challenged that this thing does work, but is my life filled with the Holy Spirit? Am I seeking God first? Have I decided that we need the world to tell us how to run church, to do things the right way? Or is there a God in heaven who's still waiting to make us fruitful and fragrant and produce hundredfold, sixtyfold, or thirtyfold based on our willingness to let the ground of our heart be broken up? And where are you individually today? Are you willing today to say to Jesus, I surrender all? Are you willing to let the faith of your fathers and your mothers be the faith that guides you? Are you willing to let Jesus construct a life that's fruitful for the generation you're raising up and give strength to the generation you're moving with and honors the generation that's gone before you? This morning, I need to tell you what I said at the end of the last sermon. I've preached the sermon mainly for myself. 
So if it wasn't something that reached you today, you need to know something. I needed to say these things for my own good. Because after 31 years of doing this, I ran into a situation, and you can pray for me, I ran into a situation that brought a great deal of discouragement to me. And this morning, I'm here reminding myself that the same God that's kept making it work for the last three decades is still able to make it work today and tomorrow and the next day. And I need to say to the Lord, Lord, if there's something you need to do in my life, do it. But please don't let me preside over an apathetic, declining, or dying church. You know what? All I can do is what I've done for the last 30 plus years. In the love of Jesus, tell you the truth and let you decide what you want to do. It's been an experiment. And I've worried at times how it was going to turn out. And I need to confess it is wrong. Because really in the end, it's mainly just worrying about me. Like Jonah. The truth of the matter is, this church is going through. <laughs> and how many here today go through with it? I could hope every single one. But I know there's a shaking coming. There was a shaking at the beginning of Adventism. There'll be a shaking at the end. I'm not planning to be sifted out. Jesus has prayed for me like he's prayed for Peter. And you know what? He's prayed for you too. And if you're humble enough like Peter to go to Gethsemane and kneel down where Jesus shed those great tears, you can't go to the literal place and say, Lord, help me. He'll redeem you and make you stronger and more vibrant. And there's Peter in the book of Acts, first nine chapters. Powerful for Jesus. That breaks my heart. When I watch the church do things it shouldn't do, it breaks my heart when I go to a church and I see these older people sitting there. They've given their whole lives to the church and all they've got is a broken down vestige of a church. What's wrong? There's a God sitting on the throne of the universe. He's going to breathe life back. But we need to be ready to receive it. I'm appealing to you. Don't take your kids to theme parks. Don't give your kids these devices to entertain them. Put them in the garden. Take them to the park. Let them play in the dirt. Give them opportunities. Have family worship. Let's see if this thing still works. It does. I've told you today how it can work. But if you've got something short-circuiting the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, I can preach till I'm blue in the face. You have to decide through the teaching of the Holy Spirit what needs to be moved out of the way so it can work. There's two types of houses, Jesus told. They both look good, but one's built on sand and one's built on a rock. The one built on the rock took a whole lot more work in the beginning phases. When the storms come, the one built on the sand collapses. Unfortunately, when houses fall down, they take their occupants with them. I'm appealing to you this morning. Jesus has invited us to humble ourselves, acknowledge the simplicity of the gospel, walk the narrow way, and build on the rock. And when the storms of life come, we'll find that he's more than enough. With Jesus in the vessel, we can smile at the storm. It's coming, friends. This world is in deep, deep trouble. <laughs>
The pendulum has started to swing the other way. I don't know what's going to happen to settle the swing into any kind of prophetic permanency, but I have a concern that it's about to be there. When some of these worldly things are brought into the, world, into the church and the bedlam that was written about in Second Selected Messages is ensconced in the church, probation is about to close. We're there. Let us be humble and prayerful, free and happy, and let's show the world how this thing works. Let's build on the rock. Let's stand together as we sing.